0: To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com slash dsm plus to get access wherever you listen.
1: Thanks. Four days, four days, crossed the border on a Sunday. I got shot on Thursday, and uh, my short-term memory is garbage these days. Um, It's because of the gunshot, but I remember everything about that day.
0: This is Death, Sex, and Money. Now I will kill you until you die from it. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot.
1: You're in more dire need of a blowjob than any white man in history.
0: And need to talk about more. I haven't seen one dollar from you. I'm Anna Sale. In the early months of 2003, Staff Sergeant Tom Tran was deployed with the U.S. Army in Kuwait near the Iraq border. He was 23 and waiting for his orders.
1: And I remember, I there's one major who was like, this isn't going to happen, boys. We've been here for three months. This is not happening. Just plan on being here two more months, and then we're going to leave. And then, like, we would watch the news every day. We'd go to the MWR tent and watch, you know, CNN coverage of, you know, this slow buildup. And we we're like, oh, yeah, this is, this is us. Like, we, we we're watching coverage that we were living in.
0: The war in Iraq started 15 years ago this month, on March 20th, 2003. Ten days later, Tom and his unit crossed the border from Kuwait into Iraq. And just four days after that, Tom went on a recon mission with a special forces team. They headed for a small city, Nazaria.
1: I was the driver. Uh, I was the lowest. (laughs) I was a staff sergeant, and I was the lowest ranking person in the truck. I had a colonel next to me, and then I had a major behind me, and I had our interpreter behind the colonel in the uh, rear passenger seat. And we were just driving through the city and we pulled down this street and to the left of us is the river. And I had a video camera with me that day because I wanted to document the area and collect intel and know what I was dealing with. So the video camera just rolled and on the tape you hear my interpreter say, this is a bad place. And no sooner did he said that, that bullets start flying. And on the tape, you hear, crack, 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 crack. And I'm like, oh. ah, shit. Ah, I got cracked in the head with something. Ah, shit, I'm bleeding. We got a casualty here.
0: It was a graze wound. He was treated in Iraq and stayed for nearly another year. But still, a bullet hit his head. And for the last 15 years, Tom's been trying to sort through what that day, and his time as a soldier, say about him as a man. Tom had grown up around combat stories. His dad flew in the South Vietnamese Air Force during the war there, and other men in his family served too.
1: I never knew my uncle, never knew my grandfather. They both died in combat.
0: It wasn't safe for Tom's family to stay in Vietnam after the other side won. So they fled and eventually landed in Buffalo, New York when Tom was a year old.
1: I grew up in the 80s with a, an older brother who's 10 years older than me who played, you know, guitar. <laughs> I listened to White Snake and Bon Jovi, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. I wanted to play in rock bands and I the, the military was not a thing that ever entered my mind until i was you know 17 nearly 18 years old literally a few months before i turned 18 and something clicked inside of me that it was like the first adult decision i ever made when i realized that my father had left his homeland and can never go back to vietnam and there are a lot of people who had sacrificed for for us to be here we were first generation americans So I joined the Army um, because I thought the very least I could do was give back to a country that was now my home because Vietnam was never my home.
0: Did your parents know you were enlisting when you did it? Oh, God,
1: yeah. It was, oh, that was an argument. Um, I was only 17, three three weeks shy of turning 18. I mean, when when you're 17, you you have to get your parents' permission. And uh, my mom was not having it. It was... Probably one of the biggest arguments we ever had um, because my father was a prisoner of war in Vietnam three years and my mother lived through that and they gave up everything to come to the United States so that I wouldn't have to fight, so I wouldn't have to live in, you know, the the kind of war lifestyle that they had to. My mom would not sign the paperwork and uh, Staff Sergeant Sanchez, he was my recruiter, he, he just, he pulls me aside and goes, you're going to be 18 in three weeks, man. Just hang out and we'll do this in three weeks. And I was like, all right, that's cool. And then uh, a couple of days after I turned 18, um, I went down and I, I, I enlisted.
0: Joining the military was also a way to pay for school. Tom's parents had told him they expected him to earn scholarships, but he wasn't a great student. And this was before 9-11. So enlisting didn't feel like much of a risk.
1: Like, I didn't think I was going to be a combat soldier. Um, I wanted to be like an armed forces network radio DJ. And, uh, and I saw Good Morning Vietnam. Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Time to rock it from the Delta to the DMZ. Saw Robin Williams uh, playing Adrian Kronhauer. And I, I remember thinking, I want to do that. I want to be that guy. <laughs> Uh, Unfortunately, that job was not available at the time. There were only so many slots available. So my recruiter was like, I have a radio job. I I remember the way he put it. And he said, I have a radio job in a special operations unit. And I'm like, what's that? (laughs) He goes, we jump out of airplanes and blow stuff up. But he said radio. So I remember, okay, I get to be a DJ who jumps out of airplanes.
0: (laughs) Different definition of radio. Yeah,
1: (laughs) (laughs) completely (laughs) not what I wanted to do.
0: When you went to boot camp as a young recruit, were there many other Asian people?
1: One. One other Asian, private Lee. And he was older than me. He was uh, actually a South Korean former rock soldier, Republic of Korea soldier. And those guys are badasses. So my first thought is, well, he's going to take a lot of the, the pressure off me. Because there are only two Asians here, and he is the one that everybody's going to be focusing on because he's already a badass.
0: Is that what happened?
1: Um, that's, I mean, that's the, the, here's the thing about basic training. You don't want to stand out, you know? So I was totally okay with like, I'm going to slink in the back of the formation, and I'm just going to get through this nine weeks. Um, and eventually that did not happen. Eventually I wound up standing out. And, uh, yeah. Why? Um, right off the bat, I got heat exhaustion and it's South Carolina in August, 1997, hot as all hell. And I'm from Buffalo, New York. I don't know anything about the heat. I don't know about, uh, hydrating yourself. And so I didn't. Sure enough, they had to put me in a, put me in a pickup truck and take me to the hospital and they had to pump me full of, uh, IVs. And uh, they, they came back and he stuck a piece of red tape on the back of my, my patrol cap, which indicated to everyone that I had been a heat casualty.
0: Oh, was that embarrassing?
1: Oh my God, yeah. Oh, Anytime someone saw the back of my hat, hey Private, did you drink water? Uh, yeah, drill siren. So uh, I was like heat injury kid.
0: Tom got through basic training and then a deployment to Eastern Europe in the late 90s. And then 9-11 happened. But even after that, Tom's military career felt like a lot of preparing and waiting, including on the day he went out in that convoy in Iraq. He'd been digging a foxhole and took a lunch break.
1: So I was sitting there with my tuna mac, and I hear uh, I hear my colonel say, hey, a team from 5th Group is here. Do you want to go play? And 5th uh, Group, 5th Special Forces Group. So I go out, uh, I'm like, hell yeah, I'll go play. Um, so I run out, and our um, big, burly, barrel-chested freedom fighter reaches his hand out and says, I'm Rich um, from Fifth Group. Hey, Rich, I'm Tom. And uh, he goes, load up. We're going to go out for a recon. Ah, shit. Ah, I got cracked in the head with something. Ah, oh, shit, I'm bleeding. Yeah, you sure are. I'm bleeding. Yeah. Oh, head. I'm bleeding! What's, where? Where are your head? Head. Head? Yeah. Fuck. I remember the feeling. You know, I remember the taste of the desert. Musky. Dirty. Like, those things come from from just the the intense memory of that moment. But I think knowing exactly what happened on the day, because it's on tape. I've watched that video literally hundreds of times, hundreds of times.
0: Why have you Um, watched it so many times?
1: To remember, because I don't want to forget how close I came to death, because I've made a lot of decisions I've made in life post-ARMY, because of that moment. So I, I, watch it.
0: Do you think watching it has been a benefit or a detriment to your mental health?
1: I would like to say it's been a benefit. Um, cause I don't question, I don't have to question what happened. I don't have to question my actions. Like, did I act right on the day? Cause the fog of war, you will question your actions. You will question your training. Um, especially if things go bad, especially if someone gets shot, especially if someone gets killed. Like, on the day, if that tape wasn't there, I would probably be asking myself, did I do the right thing? You know, if I didn't have that, I would be probably questioning everything I did, you know, for the last 12 or 13 years.
0: Along with getting grazed by the bullet, Tom hit his head in the truck during the gunfight. He was later diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury and was awarded a Purple Heart. Coming up, what was hardest for Tom after he came home?
1: I just didn't have a direction to follow. I just, I just was. Because I didn't have, I didn't have someone giving me orders. And I, at the time, was not strong enough to give them to myself.
0: Tom Tran was coming of age, he wanted to be a heavy metal rocker, then Robin Williams, then a soldier in uniform for the most powerful military on earth. He was trying to figure out what kind of man he wanted to be. And right now, I suspect that some of you may be thinking about that same question. So for our next project, we want to talk with you about masculinity. How you define it, how you live it, and how your ideas of it are changing. To start, we want to hear from those of you who identify as men. And we've got a big question for you. What's the most confusing part of being a man right now? Tell us what you think. Write us an email or send us a voice memo. We've set up a special inbox to collect your responses. It's men at deathsexmoney.org. We're starting by hearing from men. But if you're a woman, don't worry. You can still help us. Tell the men in your life about what we're doing, especially if they're not already Death, Sex, and Money listeners. Spread the word and tell them to email us at men at deathsexmoney.org. On the next episode, I hear from a mother and her son about the carjacking he committed 22 years ago. I wanted to choke him. I really did. Because I didn't understand why or how he could get involved and do something like that. Because... I've never had a gun. He's never, well, till then. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Limonata Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. After Tom Tran's deployment to Iraq ended in January of 2004, he went back home to Buffalo. It was a tough adjustment.
1: I had a real shit attitude when I came home because I'd been shot, my roommate been killed, I was in a real bad mood all the time. So I did what every combat veteran does. I fell into a bottle and uh, sat there. Um, there was a there was a fight that I was in a brawl, uh, not with anybody in the army. It was a drunken bar brawl, and um, yeah, at that point they were like, "Yep, you, you can't be here, so go work with the recruiters."
0: You're in no shape to be here, so recruit young men and women <laughs> into the armed services. Yeah, basically, <laughs>
1: yeah, um, it was it was very much, "Hey, you are not combat effective anymore." So we need you to go do something. It was just another mission for me. It was not a, a, a line unit run-in and gun-in kind of mission, but it was, it was a mission nonetheless. The Army told me to do it, and I was trying to be a good soldier.
0: When you were drinking heavily, where would you drink?
1: Um, like our Monday morning meeting started with us opening a beer, like 9 o'clock in the morning. I was drinking. Really? Um, we were all combat guys. Like, yeah, there, there were Mondays I was drunk before 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, bars, I was DJing at bars. I was, a, I was a nightclub DJ. I was a strip club DJ.
0: How did you feel okay talking to young men and women about what what their experience would be serving and, and reentering when you were yourself in such a
1: hard place? I, I, just, I just told them the truth. Like I never lied to any of them. I was not like when I. There are photos of me when I was recruiting, and I was a fatty. I could not fit in my uniform. That's how much like weight I put on. And uh, I would tell them, you know, there's gonna be bad shit. And as long as I wasn't lying to anybody and bullshitting these kids to get them in the army, I was I was doing my job, you know.
0: were in that period of re-entry, did you talk to your dad about what it was like?
1: I did. That is one of the closest—I mean, when I was growing up, I just heard the stories. My father would just tell the stories, and I had no choice but to sit there. And he wouldn't wouldn't tell in-depth stories about, like, being in a prisoner of war camp. I would hear the general stories over and over again about, like, what kind of crappy food they had— it wasn't until I came back from the war myself that we really would talk about his experience and my experience and, you know, the torture that he had gone through literally in in a camp, a prisoner of war camp. And you know, my my father realized that I was drinking a lot and he had literally been there. He had literally been in that situation, post combat, trying to figure out life I mean, he had a family and kids at the time, but he knew he wasn't stopping me. He, I I put on a lot of weight. Um, I mean, think I think I'm like 150 pounds now. I'm five foot eight. I think I was I was over 200 pounds, and he saw what was going on. Um, he didn't stop me because he he kind of knew that I had to find my own path. Um, he's the reason I I joined the army. It really is, and, you know. That was the great thing about my father. He, although oftentimes, would not encourage me to do things <laughs> reckless, like join the army or move to Los Angeles to be a stand-up comic. He was never like, "No, don't do that." Because I was like, "Hey, you're gonna do what you want to do."
0: Tom started doing stand-up the year after he left the army. He performs now with a group of other veterans at military bases around the world. They call themselves the GIs of comedy. Tom says it helps him feel connected to his time in the service and manages stress.
1: So, I've I found the things that I need to do to to be able to look at myself in the mirror. I go to the gym, I play guitar, I tell jokes, I, you know.
0: How many years ago did you leave the
1: military? 2005, I retired. So, 12 years. I've been out. I've been years. out longer than I was in the army. Do you miss it? All the time, every day. Uh, I got up at 4 a.m. this morning to go to the gym, just to, just to maintain the standard, just to, just remember who I am and what I'm capable of and what the army made me. Like I, you know, I, I see veterans getting out of the military and just letting it all go, and that's fine. That's fine for some people. It's great. Get fat, grow beard whatever. But because of my job, because of the GIs of comedy, because of the reputation that I have in the community as as a veterans advocate, I never want to show up to an event and just say, I'm representing you guys as a fellow soldier and just be a fat slob and and look like somebody that other soldiers go, no, don't do that. Don't, don't tell people you're one of us. Huh. Because I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want some fat slob who's been out for 10 years walking around telling people that he was a vet talking about old glory days like Bruce Springsteen song I don't want that
0: it's interesting how you talk about your body and and how you talk about working out now as like as a like taking care of yourself in some way as a way to stay connected to your identity as when you were a soldier
1: for me it is um I remember the moment that turned for me after after I'd been out for a while. I'd been out of the army for like a year, year and a half, something like that. I'd gone on vacation with a girlfriend and we were down in Mexico and there was a photo of us on the beach. And I looked at this photo and I went, who is that? What is that person doing on the beach wearing army shorts? And the only thing that I knew to do was to get myself back in shape. I was a fat kid growing up. I was a really skinny child, but then, you know, like right before puberty, I got real fat and I just stayed like overweight for a while. And the army helped change that. So that is also, you know, that was part of my identity. The army physically made me a different person.
0: Mm. So
1: yeah, when it comes to staying in shape, that is part of who I am. Emotionally, I, I am not ready to deal with the world until I've gotten a good two hours in at the gym because I get the endorphins going. I feel like I've, I've literally punched out all of the demons that I wake up with, the guilt and the anger and the depression that I wake up with every single day of my life. I have to get up. I have to do it, it because I can't look at myself in the mirror and go, you're a good representative of what, what soldiers are and what veterans are if I did not do that.
0: Do you still have that photo, like, of you on the beach? Have you looked at that recently? Yep,
1: I still have it. It's actually on my Instagram. It is a... Uh, uh, there's a before and after photo. So, yeah, I look at it. It's, it's like the gunshot video, you know? It's a thing that happened. And you either get better from it, you learn from it, or... You live on the wrong side of history.
0: That's comedian and veteran Tom Tran. He has a podcast where he talks with other veterans about their experiences in and out of combat. It's called Battle Scars. And he's landed a job in radio. He's a morning traffic reporter for a commercial news station in L.A. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Our interns are Catherine Shu and Angeli Mercado. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter, at Anna Sale. You can find the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at DeathSexMoney.com. And men, don't forget to share your stories about what's confusing about being a man right now. Send us an email at men at deathsexmoney.org. For Tom, the video of his gunfight in Iraq hasn't just been useful to revisit his actions on that day. It also helped him cut through military bureaucracy.
1: It's the reason the VA gave me my, my disability. Uh, as quickly as they did, you know, I'm the guy who had the video of him getting shot in the head. Like, people heard about that. Like, huh. there's a dude that got shot in the head, and he has it on tape. That's not typical. No, no. Yeah. That is that is not a thing that often happens. <laughs> it, it's not
0: typical that you start rolling before you're shot. Right. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.